This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. Well, Mother Teresa once said the worst kind of poverty is not hunger or homelessness, but loneliness. The painful reminder that even though humans can't exist alone, so many feel they do. And yet loneliness is not an objective condition like high cholesterol diagnosed with a blood test. It's subjective, an emotion. If you feel lonely, then you are lonely, proven so, even if you're not in any way isolated. For some, it's mild and transitory. For others, chronic. The pain can be so profound it feels almost physical. None of this is new. The ancients were well aware of it. Yet today's science continues to provide new insights, and we'll learn much of this from today's God Forbid panel. Michelle Lim has been a clinical psychologist for near two decades. She's also a research fellow at Swinburne University. She's co-director of the Global Initiative on Loneliness and Connection, plus chairperson of Ending Loneliness Together. Michelle, welcome to God Forbid. Thanks for having me, James. Well, in spite of that impressive professional CV, I want to ask you a personal question, if I may. So you're successful. I know you're popular socially. Uh, You're not poor. You have a loving spouse and excellent social skills. So why were you terrified when you moved from Melbourne to a dream job in St. Louis, Missouri? Look, I think that, um, you know, loneliness affects all of us. And at some point, particular critical life events may trigger it. And no matter how equipped you think you are, sometimes you can find those moments where you feel absolutely lonely. And as you mentioned, you know, I had a fantastic job. I had fantastic colleagues. I had moved with my spouse. Um, but I still felt there was a lack of meaningful social connection and, and really kind of being uh, ripped away from very familiar, meaningful social connection in Melbourne into uh, the, the Midwest of, of the United States. And, and whilst I was very much welcome in the community when I did reach out, I think there was a period of time where it felt really distant. I didn't have that meaningful social connection. I was socially connected, but it wasn't quite as meaningful as I would have Light and and that's where that critical point is. But uh, loneliness can really arise when there's the discrepancy of what you think you need and what you actually have at your disposal. A discrepancy. That's a good way to describe it. Also with us is Dr. Jonathan Zecher. He's a research fellow at the Australian Catholic University's Melbourne campus, an expert in ancient Greek and early Christian culture, author and editor of several books, including the forthcoming Disability, Medicine and Healing Discourse in Early Christianity. Dr. Jonathan Zecher, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you very much for having me. Your professional travels make Michelle's move to Missouri look like a trip to the corner store. Tell me where you've been and what it did to you. Sure. In 2006, my partner and I moved from uh, New Mexico in the United States to Durham, England for my grad school. Five years later, we moved to Houston, Texas. And six years later, we moved to Melbourne in 2017. So we, uh, this time with the, with our daughter in tow. So we have, we have picked up and moved continents uh, several times at this point. Melbourne, they say, is the world's most livable city, or at least it was at one point. Um, (laughs) But livable is not good if you're lonely. Yes. 
I think the the experience of moving to Melbourne was helped by having exactly the kind of networks that Michelle has talked about sort of not feeling that when we moved here, it was actually to join some people that, that we knew already. And that made it a less lonely experience. I think when we moved to England and we felt for the first time very much isolated from friends and family, from a church community, which we'd been a part of for some years, uh, then we experienced that discrepancy between what we needed in terms of uh, social groups, in terms of connection with other humans, and what we felt we had. And that was that was extremely challenging at the time. And your work passion is, of course, the ancient world. What's the point of finding out what people who died 2,000 years ago felt because it's the emotions of antiquity as much as the facts and figures, people and places that you are fascinated by. That's right. My, my first work with, with ancient people, especially early Christians, was with how they encountered and made sense of death. And this is a bit like emotion, something that we all experience, but that we experience through different uh, and contingent cultural situations. We have different expectations. And and so seeing what uh, these ancient Christians thought of death and now what they think of their own emotional lives, how they articulate them, how they practice their emotions, helps, at least for me personally, give a sense of perspective on my own emotional life to say that although I am going to be experiencing emotions, the way in which I experience them, the way in which I articulate them or even practice around them or manage them is something over which I have at least some choice and where I can find resources from uh, early Christian literature or or even more ancient Greek literature to help me make sense of of things now. But did an ancient Greek or early monastic, if a loved one died, was there loneliness that may have come from that, just the same as when we lose and grieve friends and loved ones? Yeah, there there was. There was. Uh, there's a whole genre of literature that starts in ancient Greece with a fellow named Crantor and, and then Cicero in Rome uh, called consolation literature. Um, and these are treatises that people wrote either for themselves or for their friends when a spouse or a child died and they had to make sense of what was for them of an absolutely devastating, catastrophic loss. And they found ways of, of, of trying to both, I think, honor their grief and reintegrate themselves into the business of, of living. And some of their answers are, would probably sound a little uh, harsh, but others might be useful in terms of, of, of how we, we might cope with, with loss ourselves. Now, final God forbid panellist today is Dr. Jonathan Andrews. Two Jonathans on the panel. We're lucky. He's clinical psychologist practicing in Brisbane, the author of The Reconnected Heart How Relationships Help Us Heal. Jonathan Andrews, welcome to God forbid. Oh, thanks very much for inviting me. You say the experience of heartbreak in its broadest sense, when relationships break down or don't emerge in the first place, it's universal. Does it really happen to everyone? Yeah, I think it does. Certainly in the um, early period of that sort of heartfelt um, injury, I guess, it, it may sort of pressure you at a heart level. So lo- people who are lonely don't always report as being depressed, but people who are lonely often have this experience where they slide into depression depending on how much withdrawal 
you know, they go through. So it doesn't happen to everyone universally, but there's certainly that sense in which the breakdown of relationships or the absence of good relationships can get to our hearts, and that's that's the potential of it. The reverse is also true, is the presence of really positive relationships can also um, get to our hearts in quite constructive ways. I guess the bottom line is um, human beings are very vulnerable to each other. In good and bad ways. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Well, we'll be looking at uh, more of this question of loneliness. Uh, it's endemic around the world, Australia too. That's next on God Forbid. There are reports suggesting that one in four Australians are lonely, and that was before the isolation of the pandemic. And since then, data from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare suggests half the country, 54%, has felt an increase in loneliness. So what are its effects? What does it cost us? And can anything be done about it? Ellen Jackson is a psychologist, writer and consultant based in Victoria. We'll hear from her in a moment. But first, Professor Alan Duncan from Curtin University in Perth is with ABC's David Taylor. People who become lonely are far more likely to engage in adverse health behaviours. They visit their GP uh, more often. There are more presentations at, at hospitals, smoking prevalence increases, so does excessive alcohol consumption and physical inactivity. And if you put a, a conservative estimate on uh, the cost of those adverse behaviours, it comes to around $2.7 billion. The World Health Organisation called on every parliament to address loneliness, labelling it a public health priority. So what's the solution? Well, Professor Duncan wants Australian state and federal governments to support local community initiatives that connect people. Establish social networks that get people active uh, out in their communities. I think that investment would generate a significant returns. Psychologist Ellen Jackson points to easier, simpler solutions. We call them these micro moments of connection and they can just be things like making eye contact with somebody when you walk past, a simple greeting or a hello, saying thank you to somebody when you are you know, being served in a shop, for example, smiling at somebody, helping others out, so helping other members of our community. You know, it's a neighbour or somebody in the street who you can see is struggling with something. Even just listening, one of the challenges I think we have is that we're all terribly busy, we're all terribly heads down, getting on with things, and as soon as we do that, we become disconnected. And that's psychologist Ellen Jackson speaking with ABC reporter David Taylor for PM. And before that, you heard Professor Alan Duncan. We'll put a link to the full report on the God Forbid website. Well, Dr Michelle Lim, those sound like reasonable enough plans to deal with mild or transitory loneliness, but if you're unfortunate enough to have that kind of existential, profoundly deep pain, almost physical pain that can come from loneliness, you know, smiling at someone at the shops ain't going to fix it, is it? Look, um, yeah, I think that there's a small proportion of our population that um, report what we call kind of a persistent loneliness. And, and it may not be severe loneliness or, or this high distressing at this moment, but it's kind of more enduring and more persistent. And we know from the Hilda data, for example, that uh, while episodic loneliness, which is much more transient, uh, reported in one year, is bad for health, um, the moment you actually have this chronicity that kind of sets in, your outcomes are a lot worse. And when that happens, it's not just, 
I'm alone, all alone uh, and lonely. It's that the future is going to be just the same, maybe worse, but not better. Is that part of the pain? Yeah, and I think that we need to really determine for ourselves if, if, if we can actually make, mitigate these, this pain and, and what actually takes within the person's context because there's a lot of systemic barriers that might also keep people lonely and that simple solutions may not work for uh, depending on the extent of your experience. And, and whilst kind of smiling at people and, and, and having those small talk might work for some, they may not work for others. So really uh, from, uh, um, I guess, a, a kind of more clinical point of view, we really need to ask ourselves and also, you know, if you are a clinician or practicing psychologist or social worker or GP, you know, what's happening for that person? You know, social needs are so complex. Uh, and people are not simplistic <laughs> like that. And joining a group for one person might be so terrifying. So, you know, it's really important for us to really understand what suits the person as opposed to just um, giving them a very simplistic solutions that may not actually work uh, within their context. But this is a problem globally. Uh, it is a problem that has always been seen as a soft issue, but we can see very clear data that this risk to poorer health outcomes and leading on to that health utilization, workplace productivity. So the economic cost of loneliness, which is something that uh, governments are responding to, is huge. Um, but obviously, there's also a community and personal cost that we really need to take action on. This is not just always about economic. This is about, you know, our relationship to people that uh, we love and, and people we live amongst in our communities. So I think the time is right now. I mean, given that we've just all experienced this big social experiment with COVID, um, there's nothing more important that, that, that we all just kind of realize that meaningful social connection is critical to our well-being. Um, and having come from Melbourne, I think, you know, those lockdowns that we had um, whilst, you know, being socially connected and, and having Skype and Zoom to to stay connected was really important. That face-to-face -face contact was was also so critical for many of us. You mentioned, Michelle, that it's seen as a soft issue at the university, although hopefully less so in the context of the pandemic. Is there also a, a public stigma to loneliness? Uh, people don't want to make friends with lonely people in some sad cases. Yes. And I think it's been perpetuated by media and, you know, many people who, who don't understand the issue and, and who think that loneliness is a consequence purely because of a personal deficit, uh, that something is wrong with you and that therefore you are lonely and nobody wants to be friends with you. But I think as we're kind of going and going through the robust research that we're doing, both in qualitative and quantitative studies, we realize this is actually a much more prevalent problem. And it can occur to the, you know, seemingly the most popular people amongst us, including celebrities, um, you know, and, and people with, with high profiles and, it, and people who seemingly have friends and family and and it's that meaningful social connection that's missing and there's no one one cause and therefore there's no one solution but what we need to do is not ignore it and actually address loneliness early so that it doesn't become this chronic persistent problem. And Jonathan Zecker, going back to the ancient world, the Greeks have so many different words for love, which some of which have sadly left our vocabulary, also lost to us the word achidia. What does that mean? 
Yes, that is a word that uh, was was almost coined by early Christian monastics. It is hard to define because it, it isn't one thing. It's a sort of cluster of emotions. Uh, akidia, akidia, or acidia refers to a, a paradoxical combination of boredom and anxiety that these early monks saw as brought on in part by their isolation in the desert. This was especially thought to afflict hermits, those who had really left human society behind. Uh, they had lost things like uh, daily routine, regular social interaction. They had experienced, by choice, mind you, but they had experienced conditions not unlike those of a good Melbourne lockdown. And these conditions helped drive this combination of emotional responses that when clustered together, they called uh, Akedia. And it was a way of describing their experience in many ways of isolation. And extraordinarily, just as we heard from Michelle, there's a stigma to loneliness today. Akedia was a sin back then. Am I, am I right? Well, yeah, yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yes, but, or yes, and which is to say that it, it's a problem. It was thought of as one of the uh, eight uh, evil thoughts or, or wicked thoughts, and it came to be seen as a, as a sin, one of the deadly sins. And so in the Middle Ages, you have lots of sermons on the evils uh, of Akedia. But in the earliest phase, uh, in the hands of a man named Evagrius of Pontus, uh, a kind of great theorist of the monastic life and of what we might even call monastic psychology, it was a train of thought that was likely to be problematic because it kind of embraced the monk in these feelings of boredom and anxiety. It kept them from the business of prayer and psalm singing that they needed to be invested in. But that at the same time, it could be seen as a sign of progress. It wasn't something that beginners encountered. It was something that the more mature monks, those who had gone to embrace that life of solitude would encounter. So they from one angle could say, ah, this is a problem. Oh no, I'm, I'm dealing with Akedia. But then that other perspective can, can also be brought in to say, but this is a good thing. This means that actually I'm on the right path, that what I'm going through right now is not a cause for shame, but for another response, perhaps persistence or maybe taking up manual labor. But there is, is an issue when this kind of emotion cluster gets stigmatized as something shameful or sinful, because then it's harder to admit that this is what one is dealing with and harder to deal with it in a kind of non-moral way, you know, without saying, oh, I'm bad for having experienced this, but rather saying, this is the kind of cluster of emotions that I'm likely to experience because of the conditions in which I find myself. And so it's important to see that kind of non-moral side of Akedia as well, yeah. And Jonathan Andrews, your book, The Reconnected Heart, argues a triple connection can be used to break loneliness, relationship with the self, relationship with others, and relationship with God. Now, what does God mean in that context? Because including God would necessarily exclude the rapidly growing number of secular people, both in your practice and Australia as a whole, who are lonely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have no interest in um, prescribing this for the people that come. I have no interest in proscribing it for the people that come. In my situation, people bring this up freely 
and it proves to be a resource for them. For people who do not have that opportunity or they, or they don't think it's relevant to them, then that isn't too much of a problem. It just means you could uh, connect with yourself and connect with other people, and those are real priorities. But also connect uh, with your own uh, values and let those things be a guide for you. Including God in the ambition to fight loneliness, it can invite derision. One hears that religion is a crutch for weak people, and especially if one imagines an imaginary friend in the sky to break loneliness, that would be underscored, wouldn't it? Uh, Well, it it depends. Uh, Like, if you believe that that is the case and if you believe that that's who you're relating to, then it may cease to have much impact on you. So for those who don't think along those lines, they think of uh, God being a a loving creator and they relate to him believing that he is a reality uh, in this world. And that proves to be a source of strength for a lot of people. Well, on our end, it's God forbid we are with Dr. Jonathan Andrews, Dr. Jonathan Zecker as well, and Dr. Michelle Lim. Up next, the extraordinary story of the woman, 12 years she spent in a cave. We've been talking about loneliness, the feeling of being all alone. Loneliness, of course, overlaps with isolation, but not everyone who's isolated is lonely. Few people on earth know this more than Jetsun Martens in Palmo. She's one of the world's best-known Buddhist nuns, but she spent 12 years living in a cave in the Himalayan mountains. Tenzin Palmo talked about what happened and what didn't with Rachel Conn. Uh, for the first six years, I stayed in a monastery there. Then I felt I needed to find uh, more isolation. I kind of made the aspiration to find somewhere. Then someone remembered that there was a cave, and so off I went. And you spent 12 years there, the last three, in silent retreat. Mm -hmm. Did that mean you didn't see anyone? Well, uh, twice a year, my Lahuli brother, who was the one who had asked me to come to Lahul in the first place, uh, he would bring up supplies. Tell me, Jetsuma, what did you do day in and day out? Well, I mean, first of all, you're doing your meditation practice. And then, of course, I mean, in the winter, one has to clear away the snow. One has to melt snow to get water. You have to chop wood. In the summer, I was growing some vegetables, potatoes, turnips. And I also was writing out Tibetan books for the people in the monastery. I did some painting and reading, and time went by. Sounds idyllic. But did you ever have times where you felt lonely or where you felt depressed, where you felt you might go crazy? No. I'm not the kind of person to feel lonely. I was very happy to be in a situation where, especially in the winter, once it started snowing, one knew that one wasn't going to see anybody for months and months. And of course, once I was in retreat, then uh, nobody would come, except, as I say, my Lahuli brother who came twice a year. Loneliness is not something which I ever suffer from. I was just very, very happy to be in a situation where I could be alone to concentrate on the practice. And at the same time, one felt very safe. 
So I was very grateful to have such a beautiful place, even though it got very wet at certain times. And that's Buddhist nun Jetsun Martensin Palmer speaking with Rachel Conn for The Spirit of Things back in 2018. We'll put a link to the full conversation on the website. Well, Michelle Lim, almost all of us are unable to do what she did, live in a cave for 12 years where our lives are simply wouldn't allow it. But what does her extraordinary story teach us? Look, and I, I think it goes back to, to loneliness is really a, a subjective experience um, and that social needs are very complex. We need to really kind of cater to a range of different um, needs and, and therefore um, really need to try and evaluate and, and, and roll out um, solutions that might be useful for particular groups of people. And and she has a very unique experience. And this is where that uniqueness of, of human social needs, you know, really come to light is that it's not very obvious to someone whether, you know, one could be lonely, even if they're, you know, around people. And that's the insidious kind of nature of loneliness that we all need to be mindful about. You know, and I think for many people, most of us can't spend even a day and hours in, in that extreme social isolation. So um, I would say she's she's quite unique. Social isolation, you know, has been used as forms of torture for prisoners, um, for example. And so, you know, she would be probably one of the more unique people. She's kind of really spending time in solitude where she actually is charging herself. There's a, a sense of peace and and well-being that goes with the state that she's in, as opposed to loneliness, where it's really very much a distressing you know, and, and comes to physiological and psychological consequences that's not good for our health. Well, at this point, Michelle, I'm sad to say we're going to get a little more lonely because we're going to lose a relationship, namely the one with you, because uh, you're a woman in demand, you must go. But let us say, well, thank you for being on half of God forbid. <laughs> thank you very much. That's Dr. Michelle Lim, clinical psychologist, co-director of the Global Initiative on Loneliness and Connection and chairperson of Ending Loneliness Together. She's a research fellow at Swinburne University. Well, Dr. Jonathan Zecker, Tenzin Palmo's 12 Years in a Cave, what do you think of it? I think it sounds daunting but to someone like me, but that it resonates with the experiences of the, the monks and nuns whose lives and sayings I, I read that they also sought out isolation as a place of inspiration or of revelation. Inspiration for what? Making friends when you get back home? <laughs> uh, it's a fair question. Inspiration for what? I think for the Christian monks that, that I study, it was inspiration from God. It was a way of getting closer to God. That one of those three relationships that uh, Dr. Andrews talked about that this was the presence that they thought of as as being with them in isolation. They left people to find God. Of course, they also would say that they found demons, uh, that there were struggles, you know, out by themselves. But you could transfer this into into a different context and look at the say the romantic movements of the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, people would seek out isolation or solitude as a way of communing with nature, uh, not necessarily a, a personal God, but the world around them, and that this was also a source of inspiration, whether for poetry or for uh, deeper reflection on themselves. And so the idea that being alone for 12 years did not mean being lonely 
makes sense to me, even as I think that I would have a hard time uh, achieving that. I, I think it can be quite terrifying to be alone with oneself or even alone with God or alone with nature and to have to confront the realities that that might uh, bring up, which is probably part of why early monastics tended to describe that, that world uh, not as empty, but as full of demons as they sought that union with God. But I think probably what it comes down to is that for them, solitude didn't mean loneliness because there was always a presence. Whether that's God or nature, there's something else there that they're tapping into. So maybe there's a connection between that and, I don't know, the great Australian bushwalk. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I can only speak to my own personal experience there, but I, I dislike being alone. I like being with friends, in groups, lots of noise, lots of buzz, except when I'm hiking. Uh, when I can get out and get on a hike, then I want to be alone. And it frees me to be with my thoughts in a way that I can deal with and to be in the world in a, in a new and different way that is at least a little bit like, maybe a little bit like the way those uh, monastics sought out solitude in the desert or the way the romantics sought out solitude in nature. So I think, I think there is something to the, to the great bushwalk. And to our psychologist, Dr. Jonathan Andrews, I mean, you strive to give your patients that sense of peace, Tenzin Palmo, found in the cave for 12 years. Uh, but is there a more accessible method of self-care uh, as described by, you know, Jonathan Zecker there that your patients can take on? Yeah, uh, I'm enjoying listening to Jonathan. I'd be quite happy to just listen some more, to be honest. But there, it is a really interesting example, the one that you've provided. There's a sense in which uh, a lot of people who get lonely have uh, two distant causes in their lives. Well, one is the cause of genes. So people who get lonely are more uh, more likely to have genes that make them susceptible to that. And they also have impoverished environments that they can grow up in. You mean emotionally impoverished, not financially? That's correct, of course. <laughs> That's correct. Uh, it is interesting to me the difference that may occur if you choose to be alone rather than it being chosen for you. So uh, it sounds as though she chose solitude and that might have its own impact of protecting her in a way that it isn't what people think about her or isn't what people feel about her, it's what she's chosen for herself. It's interesting also that she sets about two really important human functions. One is about creativity and the other is about contributing. So she was still writing. So in some respects, she's, you know, using these very healthy sort of human faculties. And she'd like, like Jonathan was talking about, you can still achieve a, a high degree of transcendence, this sense that, you know, that there is life around her as she's seeking peace. And that's something that can give you a connection. So it's hard to rule out connectedness, even in those sort of circumstances. I, the flip side to all of this is you, it's not unusual to read an account of someone being put into social isolation like a prison. So in the book I talk about uh, this lady, Sarah, who was imprisoned for 410 days and she was put into solitary confinement. And she gives the most vivid description of the, the just decomposition of her very personality uh, as the days went by. So it is interesting that you, we can have these counterexamples, but we can also have just some horrible examples of torturing people by making sure they're just 
purely alone. There is a solution that is much more readily available and it's over the fence. It's, you know, with your neighbour. It's, it's with your kids. It's with your friends. It's, it's actually on your phone. Uh, it's all of these people. Which app? <laughs> the great, there's a great many of them, I think. But it, uh, it's more accessible than what we think. Unfortunately, when we get lonely, we also have this experience that where we begin to get a little bit, um, oh, you know, our level of generosity goes down a little bit and we think in a little bit more cynical ways. And unfortunately, we also, when we start heading out, we, we become interpersonally anhedonic, which means that we're not used to it. We don't draw that much satisfaction from it. Um, so it's hard to reach out. But uh, those things are readily available. It's like a muscle that needs to be exercised. I think so, yeah. yeah. And the more you exercise, the more you draw satisfaction from it. Well, Jonathan Zecker, we, we heard about the early Christians for whom isolation was a, could be a, a, a revelation or a trauma connecting with demons or gods. In the modern era, the secular era, we of course got the ubiquity of social media and the fellowship of church or whatever religion it may be is increasingly not available to people. Uh, this is a unique time in history, the most connected we've ever been. You know, if you believe the press releases from Facebook and Twitter, no one should be lonely. Uh, yeah, yeah, if you believe the, the press releases from Facebook and Twitter. There's a question of the kind of community that, one gets, I suppose, in, in things like social media. And what I'm about to say is not my own idea. I, I get it from a, a wonderful writer named Faye Bound Alberti, uh, who's written a, a great book called The Biography of Loneliness. She talks about how those kinds of communities that one finds online, that if you go anything beyond kind of the, the pre-existing friends and family that you happen also to connect with on Facebook to the communities that you actually only get through social media, that these do gather around perhaps a shared sense of interest or purpose, but they don't provide a sense of accountability. And I found that really revelatory because it wasn't obvious to me that accountability is part of what we need to avoid loneliness, but I think it may actually be uh, quite true that the give and take of relationship is not well replicated uh, in at least a lot of social media kind of connections. And so while bringing people together in some ways, these platforms may not actually reduce loneliness uh, in the way that, a, for example, a church community, but one can imagine other communities as well, uh, do so by not only tapping into a, a sense of shared identity, uh, shared purpose, but also accountability. Uh, that's certainly something I see in my studies of, of Eastern Christian traditions which is that the work of confession in spiritual direction, the work of self-revelation to another uh, or to God through another person is integral to the formation of, of really powerful relationships that, that combat loneliness or that uh, further the attempt uh, at union with God. And in the digital world, you can simply, the moment you get the most transitory sense that, I don't want to be here or I'm comfortable or I don't like you, there's a button that says block user or whatever it may be on the app you're using. You can't do that if you're in a non-digital real-life relationship, be it family, friends or whatever. You can't just go block, you know. It's, it's, it's much more complex than that. I mean, you can end a relationship, but that's a process in itself, 
I don't want to speak to you anymore. This is how you've made me feel. This is what's happened to me after what you did here and there. I mean, that doesn't happen online. I think that's right. I think that even the process of ending a relationship kind of IRL, you know, in real life, requires the give and take that you don't have to get into. You don't have to sacrifice anything to block somebody. You just block them and they're gone. It's like they never existed. Whereas in our kind of day-to-day relationships, there are consequences and there are going to be feelings to be worked through and traumas to be dealt with uh, in the formation and, and, and loss of relationships. So I think that creates a different kind of accountability, but a really very important one. If grief is the price of love and there's no grief in ending a relationship online, it would suggest that online relationships are loveless. What do you think, Dr. Jonathan Andrews? That's an interesting comment. Um, There is some sort of um, traction that we get in it. Otherwise, it would never form in us some sort of addiction. And that is the original intent so the first president of Facebook has been quoted as been saying, how do we consume as much time and conscious attention possible in the users? And then he goes on to talk about, you know, likes and comments and, and then says it's a social validation feedback loop. It's where aiming to exploit human vulnerability. So there's a sense in which it grabs something of you because you enjoy it when someone else likes something that you've done and that's the bait. So if someone defriends you, you're likely to have some sort of hit. But it's also the sense in which, well, you know, the whole system is not, not like the face-to-face system that I'm used to. Um, so it does, it's not going to hurt quite as much, No. You should set up face-to-face book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think so. On our end, it is God forbid we're looking at loneliness. We are with Dr. Jonathan Andrews and Dr. Jonathan Zecker. Loneliness and gender, up next. We've spoken a lot about the social and spiritual side of loneliness, but does gender play a role? Dr Nicholas Hookway is Senior Lecturer in Sociology at the University of Tasmania. He spoke with Helen Shield on ABC Hobart, who asked him if men have a tougher time connecting with other people than women. The research certainly suggests that they that they do, and this is becoming a, a fairly uh, sort of stubborn finding that that's that's emerging out of a, a lot of the the research on 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 loneliness. Um, so men are are having a more difficult time in terms of you know actually reaching out when they they are they are lonely. They're they're more likely to report loneliness as as a serious problem. And they don't necessarily have the skills to do something about it. Perhaps there's something about Australian masculinity. I think I've talked a little bit about this before where there's certain codes around how men behave. And, you know, we all know the stuff about, you know, men aren't great at expressing their feelings. They they don't seek out connections for the sake of it in the way that women might. So, you know, women will just, you know, get together for the sake of getting together, whereas um, male friendships can be a little bit more instrumental, a bit more transactional, you know, there and they it often needs to be framed around doing something so playing and that's golf not a bad or, thing is it no absolutely not absolutely not 
what are some options? You mentioned sport is a really good one. Sport and fitness of any kind really is going to bring men together. Yeah, well, a lot of men's social ties or friendships will come through work or sport. And work is actually part of the problem in many ways because we know in Australia that we're working longer and longer hours. This has been a, a steady pattern over the uh, last few decades. You know, there's there's some there's some things that men there's been some good movements. Of course, the men's sheds yes. movement has been a, a great phenomenon, and that's really helped connect particular um, older older men, and and it's been really really a successful program. But also, it's like, does that really? Uh, my question about that is, does that appeal to all types of men? Probably not. Not all men want to come and make stuff together. No, they don't. That's sociologist Dr Nicholas Hookway from the University of Tasmania with ABC's Helen Shield. Well, Dr Jonathan Andrews, what you heard there, is, is that confirmed in your, in your practice, your work, your research? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Men seem to uh, gather connection around shared intentionality. So if there's a purpose or if there's a goal for getting together, we seem to be much more comfortable with that. And yet, and in light of that, you know, when I go to a coffee shop, I used to work, work in inner West Brisbane. And I, if I had the opportunity to go out to a coffee shop in mid-morning, there was a disproportionately high amount of men there. And if you ask them, you know, what are they doing? You know, we might joke that they're solving the world's problems like that. But I think that there's kind of like an element of truth to that to some degree. Like we we like to get together. We like to solve things together. Um, but it seems as though the, the connection is secondary to that. It makes into that this realisation that regardless of gender, the underlying need is to be loved. So the longest running um, re- piece of research into men. It's called the Harvard Grant Study. It started in 1938. And it's been going every year ever since then. And it's based around, well, originally 268 men. Um, but the researchers got together with these guys, and they're all men, and followed them from the age of about 16 all the way to, through their deaths. And now they're interviewing their, their children and their grandchildren. Um, and when the lead researcher at one time was asked, what's the conclusion of the study? He said, I have a five-word conclusion. Happiness equals love, full stop. Now, this is about men. Now, you might you might ask a man, you know, what do you need the most? And he might say, well, you know, I need to do something of purpose and I need some sort of industry, some sort of goals. And that's true, but there's also this sense in with men that, you know, love still is the deepest and most demanding of needs that we all have. Jonathan Zecker, I bet this is not a new thing. Tell me about the emotions of men and women, distinct and the same, in ancient times. Were they perceived differently? That's a very, very good question. I'm going to say that they were perceived differently, that men's kind of emotional norms were considered to be different from women's. However, they're not the same norms that we take for granted now. But when you get to, especially the Christian tradition, in the monastic tradition, there seems to be a deliberate blurring of the boundaries between men and women, that even as as these were people who chose a life of of celibacy, and so to keep themselves quite distinct, um, men 
would engage in activities that would otherwise be thought of as appropriate to women. So they would weave baskets sitting in their monastic uh, cells, their rooms, uh, weave baskets instead of farming. They would pray, and when they pray, they, they sought to pray with tears and weeping, which were not considered terribly masculine things to do. And so there is a sense in which Christian practices created new uh, kind of emotional norms or emotional scripts for men and women that might play on on kind of traditional uh, norms, but which which blurred boundaries between the sexes or between the genders, and allowed for new possibilities. It's extraordinary because uh, the idea that that well, for want of a better term, sensitive new age guy you describe is in fact two thousand years old is uh, both revealing, but also, as you suggest. Uh, holds some promise for a changeable future. I think that's right. I think the sense that men have to do things a certain way or men experience things a certain way begins to come apart when you when you look at it historically and say, well, well, gosh, men have done things very differently at different eras or in different cultures. And at those times and in those places, it was normal. It was probably taken for granted. This is just how men are, or this is just how women are. But in fact, we find that they're quite different. And so there is a, uh, a flexibility that's possible in a way of saying, well, well, gosh, it might be normal or considered normal that, uh, as John was talking about with men's sheds, that men need a purpose together. They don't necessarily want to just hang out and be. And I say, well, maybe so, but what if I didn't assume that was the case? What if I look at other points and find that men did gather just to, just to be together? And well, maybe I can do the same thing. I, I don't have to be bound by these assumptions. I'm a little bit free to do something differently. And I, I think that's that is exciting because that is liberating, and that's liberating for for however one uh, identifies or understands one's gender, to say that the expectations that are out there are not the way that it's always been, and they're not the way it always has to be. Uh, and so then, all of a sudden, I have more possibilities. I can get together at a coffee shop, and whether or not I'm solving the world's problems, I'm getting together, and I enjoy that. Because, I mean, I have to say one, one thing that Jonathan just said that I, I could not agree more with that. The underlying reality is that we want to be loved. You know, this is something that, that, that goes beyond whatever other uh, expectations might be put on relationships. This desire to be loved and to and to and to love, uh, which can be reclaimed through perhaps other means or other ways, if if we take a, a kind of broader perspective and say, well, the assumptions about how I get to be loved or how I get to love are not necessarily fixed; uh, they are cultural and contingent. And yet, Dr. Jonathan Andrews, we know religion can help and hurt in this regard. Your faith, Christianity, uh, not excluded from that phenomenon. No, definitely not. It's it, it's something that, you know, people read theology, uh, but people bring their own experiences into their theology. And it depends on the nature of the God that you have theologized as to whether he would be helpful or a comfort or not. Isn't it the nature of the believer? Uh, that creates the belief? Well, if an individual has a, prescribes roles for gender or says this is how it should be, it's a, it's a sin to have it that way, uh, these are, in the course of history, typically rules made by men, not by gods. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, and we need to we need to do better. Um, we need to tread carefully, and we need to tread less confidently into the future with some of these things. And we need a we need a, a gospel of uh, compassion and reconciliation. And that's one that uh, we all need if we're going to be comforted by a deity. Yeah, without that, I think uh, the deity would cease to be a resource for many people. On our end, it is God forbid. Wits and Quiz up next. Wits and Yes, it's Wits End, the God Forbid quiz. Uh, unfortunately, the buzz is a bit depressing today, given our topic, but chin up, put on a happy face. Jonathan, test your buzzer. Ah, oh, I'm so desperately lonely. Oh, well, you, you, you're with friends now. And Dr Jonathan Zecker, there's research showing med, men's sheds are effective, but not for everyone, because when men ask other men to be their friend, they can't be heard over this sound. Test your buzzer. Yeah, well, how could, it's just a men's shit. How can you possibly make friends with all that din? But anyway, uh, first question. Who is the first lonely person in the Bible? Oh, I'm so desperately lonely. Adam. Yes, well done. Yeah, that's right, the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, it says, Adam gave names to all the birds and animals of the field but couldn't find a partner. So God made a, a woman out of Adam's rib who in chapter 3 is named Eve. Next question. The song Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles. In that song, what does Father Mackenzie do the night when he's in isolation and nobody's there? He's writing a sermon that no one will hear. Yeah, that's true. But also, I think he darns socks, doesn't he? <laughs> what, what, now, what does darning a sock mean? It means what? Repairing the hole, I think. Sew it up. <laughs> you're, you're running the quiz. Um, next question. Who said, I hate loneliness, but it loves me? Oh, wow. Oh, uh, I don't know. Yep, me neither. The Japanese manga artist Kubo Taito. He's got uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, his manga comics in print. Next question. Does loneliness literally make you feel colder? I don't mean less kind. I mean lower temperature. Yes. Correct. How did you know that? Studies have found that recalling a time in which you felt lonely makes participants estimate the room temperature as being significantly colder than if you're not recalling such an event. Uh, it, it also makes your actual skin temperature drop. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, what's the maximum number of Facebook friends you can have? That's the next one. Oh, I don't know. I was going to say 4,000, but I think that's wrong. Uh, it's 5,000. Um, but if you're more popular than that, you can change your personal account to a Facebook page. And by this measure, who is the second most popular person on earth? Shakira, the musician, Will Smith or Vin Diesel, the actors, or Mr Bean? Oh, I'm so desperately lonely. Will Smith. No, it's Mr. Bean. Go online right now and check it out yourself. It's extraordinary. Mr. Bean, played by uh, Rowan Atkinson, has 130 million followers. He's the second most popular person on earth in terms of wow. Facebook page likes, bettered only by who with 150 million? A sporting star. Who would that be? 
Supercoach Gus Gould, maybe. Oh, I'm so desperately lonely. Oh, Tom Brady? Ronaldo, 150 million um, oh. followers. Just shading, God forbid, by a fraction. <laughs> and, um, but I'm sure that's all going to change, given that this program is, has um, been broadcast so, uh, and podcast. So we, we say thank you to our guests. It's come to a close. The two Jonathans. Jonathan Andrews, thank you for being on the show. Oh, it's been a privilege to, to participate. Thank you so much for inviting me. And to have you. Jonathan's a clinical psychologist practising in Brisbane, the author of The Reconnected Heart, How Relationships Help Us Heal. And Dr Jonathan Zecker, thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been really illuminating. Jonathan, number two, is research fellow, uh, in no particular order, at the Australian Catholic University's Melbourne campus, an expert in Greek and early Christian culture. Uh, check out his forthcoming book. He's co-editing Disability, Medicine and Healing Discourse in Early Christianity. Earlier in the program, we had Dr Michelle Lim as well, uh, the co-director of the Global Initiative on Loneliness and Connection and chairperson of Ending Loneliness Together. She's research fellow at Swinburne University. And with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. You can subscribe to the podcast on the ABC Listen app. Email me at godforbid at abc.net.au, especially if you're lonely. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. This has been God Forbid. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.